It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the He Said, She Said edition. I am Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. Joined here in the Rational Security Studio with my friend Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. You're back. I'm back. You're back and feeling good. Uh, yeah. Feeling yeah. rational. Feeling feeling rational. Yeah. And secure. And very secure. Yeah. We're, we're glad that you're here. Uh, and we're also joined this week by our good friend Cody Popman of Lawfare. Hey, Cody. Hey, Shane. How's it going? Good. How are you? Cody, very this is your first here. time on the podcast. It is my inaugural experience. Cody has been dragooned into, <laughs> in, into being on the podcast this week. From writing uh, the news to talking about, about it. About four minutes ago, I walked into <laughs> Cody's office and said, do you want to be on Rational Security this week? And he said, uh, and I said, of course you do. Of course Let's you go. do. Of course and you so do. here he is. But Cody, you've been like a behind-the-scenes force on Rational Security for quite some time. Like You like have frequently stepped in as our engineer when yeah. we needed one. Because I don't know how to run any of the equipment that's actually sitting in front of us right now. That's usually Ben's prior Ben's job. Well, Cody is the is the the lawfare jack of all trades. That's true. Um, and with the imminent departure of Wells Bennett, uh, is is going to step in as our our acting managing editor uh, for some period of time until we. Uh, you know, wave the, the magic wand and hire Wells' permanent replacement. So <laughs> lots of things that uh, Rational Security re- listeners and lawfare readers uh, experience are actually made possible by Cody Popper. This be called the well, this is Cody too kind. Edition. Yeah. Wow. There Cody's you go. taking over. <laughs> He's taking things over. The Cody Coup edition. Exactly. Uh, all right. This week on the show, has the Obama administration outplayed Xi Jinping and China on cyber spying. The Taliban is on the march in Afghanistan. What does this mean for the future of U.S. troops in that country? And the new movie Sicario is one of the sharpest criticisms yet of the war on drugs. Plus, in our object lessons, we'll have some other... I was going to talk about Sicario, but we're going to talk about some other things in our object lessons. Godzilla. Godzilla. We could talk about Godzilla. No, okay. I actually have... I'm going, to, I'm going to be pulling out from... pulling something from the archives for object lessons, mm. which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, okay, let's start. Uh, ben, why don't you start with our wordplay? Uh, he said, she said. We've said a lot of things on Cyberspring. She has said some things on Cyberspring. Yeah, well, so it turns out this week, or last week, um, President Obama said that there uh, shouldn't be cyber espionage for... Uh, uh, stealing of trade secrets and economic advantage. That's what he said. And she also said that there shouldn't be cyber espionage, uh, for, uh, purpose of stealing trade secrets and economic advantage. And this is, uh, a, you know, at least a rhetorical, uh, bit of a coup for the Obama administration that he and she are both saying the same thing. Um, now, Jim Lewis, who is a China cyber guy at CSIS. Yep, one um, of the best. One of the best. 
uh, gave a, I thought, really interesting interview uh, to Stuart Baker over at the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast, which I really encourage uh, listeners uh, to uh, spend, you know, half an hour listening to. I, um, and he had what I thought was a quite counterintuitive uh, but very intriguing and maybe persuasive case that uh, this was not simply uh, a rhetorical win for the Obama administration, that it was really a substantial uh, policy victory and uh, outmaneuvering on a bunch of different fronts of the Chinese and represents a real win. Um, and so his argument, which I think will be surprising to a lot of people who have heard you and me uh, ridicule the sanctions threats, uh, want scratch our heads about uh, the ver the valid you know the usefulness of indictments of Chinese officials, PLA officials who you can't get your hands on to prosecute. Uh, Lewis's analysis was first of all that the Obama administration had won big in this negotiation with China. Secondly, that it is a real sea change for the Chinese to say publicly and for Xi Jinping specifically to say publicly uh, what he said about, you know, cyber espionage and, um, and trade secrets, that that represents um, a, a major policy statement for the Chinese government that sets up, you know, substantial follow-up opportunities for the United States. And third, and I thought most sort of surprising about it, was that the uh, indictments had humiliated the People's Liberation Army and were taken extremely seriously by the Chinese and were a big part of what led to this change on the part of the Chinese. And furthermore, that the Chinese do not really understand the difference between sanctions and indictments. And therefore, the threat of sanctions was very compelling as a sort of possible further humiliation, and that this really led to a successful negotiation in which, you know, the Chinese sort of, uh, you know, adopted a substantively different position than they previously had. So I thought this was a, uh, it was a very interesting discussion between him and Stuart, who is, uh, as listeners to that podcast know, not all that uh, sympathetic to the idea of, um, you know, negotiating with the Chinese over norms. Um, and it was a, it was, I thought, a pretty interesting discussion. And I thought Lewis made a pretty persuasive case that more had gone on in, uh, and the Chinese had given more ground than many American commentators, including us. Had uh, had allowed for. I find that that third part of that most fascinating too, because it it suggests. I guess what he's arguing is that we viewed entirely wrong the way that these uh, um, lawsuits and perhaps even the threat of sanctions are perceived. Because from our perspective, we look at this and we think these are just feckless, useless, symbolic things that aren't going to do any real damage, and the Chinese must be laughing to themselves at how weak we are and how, and how we tie ourselves up in knots just to do something as meaningless as these five indictments. But so, so what is the idea that behind the, the humiliation, like humiliated in front of whom? Yeah. Is this, I mean, is this partially about saving face, uh, I guess, amongst other agencies in, in China? Um, 
Well, so, I mean, I, I think the argument is that the People's Liberation Army was singled out, was caught, and this was humiliating. Maybe both, their tradecraft isn't that good. Both externally right. and, and internally with respect to their relationships with other agencies. Um, and that and their they, photographs were in that indictment. Yeah, I mean that that, that they we they were right they, were, they were called out, yeah. and uh, that this involved a something of a loss of prestige, uh, and there was a lot of fear um, of further activity in this regard, of which sanctions was considered sort of the dangling threat. And that this provoked a very significant negotiation. Now, I'm not putting my own weight behind this analysis. I, I don't, I don't purport to know enough about Chinese, um, you know, bureaucracy and agency culture or for that matter about, you know, what the internal reaction to any of these things was. But I do note that Jim Lewis is a very serious guy and I think the argument is worth taking seriously. I wonder if, if he is correct, if we do operate under that assumption, how does it affect, you know, kind of the interactions going forward from here? Well, I, I, a way to answer that might be what the interactions were right up to the announcement. And one thing I thought was interesting was uh, this Chinese official, Meng, who is sort of the... He's basically the equivalent of the Secretary of Defense, came over for this previously unannounced and, and not revealed until he left, intense four-day set of meetings, mostly around cyber, but also around maritime security issues. And my understanding from talking to folks who are familiar with that visit is that it was in large part to come over and try to head off mm. an attempt by the administration to issue sanctions ahead of Xi's visit, which we all assumed like we would never do that. That would be indecorous or undiplomatic. The Chinese apparently thought we might actually do it and came over to try and settle something. We also were pressuring Xi to say what he said at that press conference. I was told by one person close to the administration, if he doesn't acknowledge cyber, you know, cyber spying as being wrong for economic purposes, that means the administration lost something. He actually acknowledged it. So I wonder if maybe what this means is now the Chinese, we have their attention. Right. And that we basically have said to them, this is how the relationship is going to be going forward, is that we're going, you're going to start giving more things that we want. And if you don't, these are the sticks that we're going to use against you. So that is certainly the implication of, of the argument that he made. And I think if you take it seriously, it suggests that the United States has a great deal more leverage in that conversation than our often hand-wringing on the China spy cyber spying front uh, would lead you to think. And I think that's a, a sort of optimistic view, a note that's, uh, you know, worth worth taking account of. You know what's also interesting? And I, I never thought of it this way because, again, I've sort of had my, my lens has been very much through the, the indictments are meaningless. Can you imagine what would have happened? in our military bureaucracy if the Chinese indicted like five senior but publicly unknown officials and implicated them in intelligence operations and in the course of doing it revealed their targets and their trade craft and all of these kind of I mean we would be losing our shit yeah. over that and saying oh my god the Chinese have figured this out and they're telling the world how we right. did it right so uh, you know the other the other interesting dimension of this is that you know he 
does suggest that there is a confluence of interests between the United States and Xi Jinping in the internal bureaucratic battles within with the People's Liberation Army. That specifically, you know, the PLA uses the tradecraft spying uh, or the, the the trade secret spying as a way of funding businesses, right. and and uh, this is a sort of sidelight thing that you know it's a it's an army, but it's also a, a you know a, a holding company, hmm. and they steal secrets to support their, their companies, companies. Um, and you know Xi Jinping wants a. A prof- more professional, more modern army, and modern armies, professionalized armies, don't run corporate conglomerates. They're not cartels. Right? Yeah. They're not, not cartels. Yeah. And so, I think there, you know, the other component of this analysis that I thought was really interesting was this idea that maybe, um, maybe, she's modernization of the military. Uh, will have the effect of pushing it out of, not out of the espionage business, because, of course, militaries do that sort of thing, but out of the uh, self, you know, money-pocketing uh, kind of espionage. And he has gone over gone after PLA officials in, For cor- in the anti-corruption context. And what's notable is part of this agreement, too, the cyber agreement that we reached with China, is we've created this senior level kind of standing committee that's going to meet, I think, every six months. From which the PLA is, is not part. Correct. They are not a hmm. part of it, which is telling. I mean, now, now I mean, I think we begin to wonder, are they not a part of it because Xi Jinping said, you're not going to be at this table. You know, you will not be here. But, but Cody, real quick, just you meant, talk about a little bit about the, you know, the, um, uh, the uh, issue with the Spratly Island. Yeah, so... Because this factors into all of this, too. So this weekend, um, Dan DeLuce over at Foreign Policy uh, released a, a piece quoting U.S. senior defense officials saying that they would be conducting freedom of navigation exercises, um, uh, I guess close to within the 12-mile radius of artificial islands in the Spratly Island right. chains. 12 miles uh, being, uh, once you cross 12, you're in their waters versus Exactly. Yeah, well, at least that's the claim, the claim um, right. the Chinese are making. Um, and I, I wonder how much of this is also part of the Obama administration uh, turning to, you know, to being a bit more proactive on some of these issues or using more measures to, to get, uh, bring attention to them? I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, it's always been the U.S. position that these are international waters, right. and it's the Chinese position that anything within, you know, 12 miles of poured concrete anywhere in in that sea that's, you know, within what they call the nine-dash line is their territorial waters. And this is just a, you know, somebody's got to lose this fight, and it's an important thing for the U.S. to uh, remind the Chinese that we don't accept those territorial claims. Well, and it's an important signal to send to, you know, our partner governments in the region, particularly the Philippines. I think um, I think beyond being expansive, the claims are also quite novel too, and that it includes an exclusive economic zone. And in that exclusive economic zone, the Chinese have a right to say that U.S. military vessels can't enter. Right. Um, which is, you know, has a huge impact on our ability to shape regional events and, and assure, you know, our allies. Um, so maybe it's a, it's a really positive step. 
Okay, so we'll go to my word play uh, from a, from a, from one subject where it seems like the Obama administration's foreign policy is going pretty well to one where not maybe not so much. Uh, uh, the Taliban has seized control, well, it's seized mostly control, we think, or at least is threatening to take almost all of it, of the northern Afghanistan city of Kunduz. Uh, uh, residents of nearby towns are fleeing. Um, this is a big deal in large part because the Taliban did not have a stronghold in that part of the country, and Kunduz is a big city. It's not just some small place, and it sort of strategically is important because it is on a major uh, road going into Kabul. Um, so... I guess the immediate question of this, and we should add also, of course, over the weekend, uh, U.S. airstrikes apparently uh, were targeting Taliban militants believed to be in the vicinity of a Doctors Without Border hospital and um, <clears throat> bombed the hospital and killed Oops. Them. Yeah. Big, big problem. Uh, a lot of questions right now still. The Obama talked about this. He gave his condolences. There's a DOD investigation. He's not said what happened if we were guilty or not. Uh, but obviously this is going to be a huge issue uh, in complicating uh, going, you know, the whole question of what is the future of our troop presence in Afghanistan. Um, the Washington Post is reporting this morning, we're recording this on a Monday morning actually, that the president is weighing a plan to keep as many as 5,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan beyond 2016. So <clears throat> I guess like my, my question for both of you guys is, you know, A, does the fact that the Taliban has now, you know, res, res, I don't know if we say resurge, but sort of proven itself to be stronger and more capable than we thought, <clears throat> what does that do to the long-term uh, presence of troops in the country? We have about 9,600 right now. <clears throat> and B, like, what do you make of the fact that, you know, in Iraq, we had no military presence and we left behind an Iraqi army that was supposed to defend itself and ISIS comes and takes over these these. Uh, towns in Iraq, Mosul, and other key towns. In Afghanistan, we do still have a troop presence there, but again, the Afghan army could not protect itself. I mean, how much, I guess, my question too is, does the presence of U.S. troops in a country really matter? And in, in order to actually, you know, just having them there, it seems to me, does not guarantee at all that you will be able to protect key cities and territories from insurgents and militants and people that you don't like, that really it's about whether you have them in a combat role. Right. So I think one of the questions about Afghanistan is what the objective is, right? So if the objective is to hold, to cr keep a relatively stable government in Kabul that controls as much territory as you can as it can, um, I'm not sure how much, you know, more than U.S. support it will take to do that. I think there's, um, you know, reason to think that the Kabul government can, is a sustainable project if you have very low ambitions for it. Uh, I think the harder question is, if the goal is to make that government actually capable of ruling the entire country without a shadow government, you know, terrorizing the people, uh, I'm not sure we've been able to do that with large numbers of U.S. troops mm -hmm. there. Right. And certainly since we, uh, you know, Certainly the Taliban has proved quite able not merely uh, of, of frustrating that, but of, you know, sort of like really minimizing the effectiveness of that government in, 
you know, governing outside of, you know, a few major population centers. Um, and I don't know what the value of the marginal U.S. troop is in, in, in that calculation. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, so I think one of, one of the questions has to be what's the strategic goal of the, of the, of the underlying Afghan policy? Is it merely to keep that government sort of formally there and ruling major population centers? Um, and kind of open for business with the outside world, or is the goal really in the longer term to consolidate that government as the sort of long-term, you know, governance of Afghanistan? And, uh, you know, my suspicion is you would have to keep a fair number of U.S. troops there to have any hope in the lo- in the longer project. And Iraq is a cautionary tale in, mm-hmm. in that, uh, you know, certainly the the Maliki government was better positioned than the Afghan government was to be sustainable in the absence of U.S. troops, and both for reasons of its own ineptitude and malfeasance, and because it was relatively weakly knit together, it did not function that way in practice. And I think there's not a lot of reason to assume that without a lot of ongoing help from the United States, the Afghan government will be you know, significantly more effective than that. But that's, you know, just my, you know, just a, a guess. Kyrie, what do you make of it? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I have two, two thoughts on it. Um, the first is I, I look at it and I wonder why, um, you know, once again we see U.S. trained troops or U.S.-backed troops being unable to take clear and hold territory. Um, and what do, we, what do we make of that and exactly how embedded are we going to need to be across you know, the region, um, to be able to clamp down. Maybe they just, they didn't, they did not, they did not take to the training. Do you know what I mean? I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, you're providing all of this well material. Trained them? <laughs> and, and I, a senior Afghan government official, um, commented that they, the, the problem is that they didn't have enough resources. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, but when we've provided all of this support, you provided billions of dollars in military aid and And our special and forces training. did respond at the airport, too, to try and help, you know, fend off this. Exactly how far path. can you go? There's certainly a, a, you know, a decreasing marginal uh, benefit on, on U.S. troop presence. But I, I just, I don't know exactly how and what direction you need to, to, to shift the calculus. The, the other thing I, I, I question is, you know, or I think about is how big of a boon is this to Mullah Mansour, the new leader of the Taliban, mm-hmm. um, to be able to claim that he's been in power for, you know, just a couple of months, huge, you know, leadership of crisis. he's also been in power for the two years before that. Sure. Just, just nobody knew. Well, perhaps, yeah. But, but, you know, even so, now to be able to signal kind of across the globe that not only have I taken power and asserted control, but I have at least claimed for a weekend for three-day, four-day period, a city and taking it from the U.S.-backed government. Which his predecessor never did. Right. Right. Which no one has done except for the Islamic State right. since the 9-11. So now the Taliban is... is uh, Resurgent. Well, no, and, 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 and pursuing a policy of clear and hold. Right. And also... And why are they able to do so and the <laughs> Afghan government isn't? Yeah. Like, you know, like... Well, and interestingly, like, and, and coming in, like, the Taliban coming in and mounting something of a PR offensive, too. I mean, some of the reporting on this was that they came in and said, you know, essentially, it's okay, we're the kinder, gentler Taliban, and we're not going right. to do some of the things we did before, <clears throat> preceded by some reports to go ahead and, you know, 
do them anyway and start killing government and police officials. <clears throat> but I think, you know, it makes me wonder whether they're taking a lesson out of ISIS here and saying, like, you know, you have to kind of mount a, pu a public relations strategy and assert yourself, you know, as this kind of governing authority. And look, we're going to make things better for you. Um, you know, to the extent that they're doing that, and at the same time, we're accidentally bombing a hospital. It's mm. sure making things go. They're having a very good weekend, I guess, is how. Right. I mean, and, and merely, merely provoking a U.S. attack that happened to hit a hospital yeah. is in, in the world of the Taliban, that's a great coup. Yeah. Right. You know, anytime you can get the U.S. to kill civilians in a hospital, you know, you've done a good day's work. Is there, I, I, were there rumblings over the weekend that I read this right of people in Doctors Without Borders suggesting that it could have been a criminal act? I mean, like a, calling it potentially a war crime? Yes. Yes. Um, is there any validity to that? Well, so, I, I mean, you are obligated under the laws of war to, you know, a, to make reasonable efforts to discriminate between civilians and lawful targets. Uh, and so to the extent that, that the commander uh, didn't take reasonable steps to do that. Um, that could be a war crime. Yeah, I I think the likelihood that when you if, when you investigate this, what you're going to find is that somebody said, "Oh, a hospital, let's bomb it," is right. you know quite close exactly. to zero. And I'm much I'm quite certain that what we'll find out is that this is in the department of tragic accident where. You know, and the question will be, is it tragic accident of a type that involved a, a major league screw up or is it a type that involved faulty intelligence? You know, that we don't know. But it's certainly true that if you intentionally targeted civilians or if you recklessly bombed something knowing that they were there, yeah, that, that is a war crime. Right. So it's, but I think the idea that it, that, that this incident was a war crime rather than you know, an unfortunate tragedy is probably very small. And will the DOD investigate it with an eye towards answering that question, or...? DOD is remarkably good about doing serious after-action reports in, in situations like this. Um, now, are there... There are certainly times when, you know, people don't believe the results that they come up with and believe that they're inflected by self-protection. But my impression is that they, you know, really don't want to be hitting civilians, and they, when something goes wrong like this, they're pretty good about figuring out what happened and, you know, how things went wrong. And, and I, I have no prospective reason to say, you know, we shouldn't let a, a, a DOD after-action investigation go forward and, you know, see what see what it comes up with. All right, so we'll report back on that. Um, okay, so our last wordplay, uh, switching gears a little bit. Although there Shane is, went to the movies. I went to the movies. <laughs> I mean, there's actually a weird Afghanistan connection to this. Um, so I saw this new movie, uh, <clears throat> the new movie Sicario, which some people may be familiar with. This is um, Benicio Del Toro, Josh Brolin, and Emily Blunt. Uh, an unusual role for Emily Blunt to be playing a FBI hostage negotiator tactics SWAT team <laughs> person. Um, but basically this movie is, so it sort of presents as this movie about 
the U.S. fighting drug cartels in Mexico, and in particular right across the border in Juarez. Um, and what you really find out as this goes along, you follow uh, this FBI agent, uh, played by Emily Blunt, is that there is this larger sort of U.S. government-backed conspiracy to essentially launch kind of like a shadow war on the drug cartels in Mexico. And you, you're, so it takes, you know, halfway through the movie before you figure out what's really happening because you're sort of seeing it from her perspective. Um, and it's beautifully shot. It's, you know, chillingly edited. The music is really creepy. It's exceptionally violent. Hmm. So if you're like into, not into violent films, I do not recommend this. Um, there's a lot of special forces guys who served in Afghanistan on the team. There's like this shadowy Mexican, maybe Colombian guy played by Benicio del Toro. Sicario in, Me- in Mexico, by the way, refers to a hitman. So that kind of tells you something about where this is going. But what I really loved about it was, was two things. Was one, it's, it's a really smart critique of the war on drugs without being a screed. So it's not like, <clears throat> if you guys saw the movie Traffic that Steven Soderbergh did, which was sort of this like collection of three or four different plot lines, all of which were meant to be this like very direct kind of critique about the war on drugs is failing, you know, it's not preventing the kinds of crimes and, and terrible outcomes in the United States that it's means to. It followed like Michael Douglas, I think, played a senator and his daughter is hooked on heroin, this kind of thing. This is more sort of like the dark side of the war on drugs and and what it does to us if we're really going to try and fight it. So the premise of this movie is that this task force has basically been assembled to, you know, apparently under the auspices of a covert CIA finding, do awful, awful things to the Mexican drug cartel that we would never allow our law enforcement agencies to do. And it smacks of sort of that taxi to the dark side kind of idea of the war on terror of we're going to start doing things we would never do. And it really points up a lot of the futility of the drug war, I think. Um, and I think that listeners of the podcast will also appreciate that while the situation sort of seems, you know, maybe a bit fantastical, all of the sort of bureaucratic underpinnings, which they actually spend a fair amount of time talking about of the ways that this program actually works are totally plausible. So what's an example of that? So Emily Blunt, that, I'm spoiling some of this too, so if you don't want to know, just kind of you know, tune out for a second or fast forward, but Emily Blunt does not know why she's been selected to go on to this task force, and she doesn't even know who these people are. Like, she thinks maybe they're DOD, maybe they're CIA, what is this weird Colombian guy doing here? He won't tell anybody who he is. Why are we saying that we're flying down to El Paso, but actually we're going into Juarez? Does, does Washington know where I am? And she's kind of put there, she thinks, because she is this, you know, kind of go-get-em, hard-charger, you know, idealistic agent. And it turns out, like, no, she's just there to, like, hang an FBI stamp on what is actually a CIA operation so they can operate on American soil. And it's like, oh, I see. It's like this little bureaucratic trick. And she's just there to basically put the imprimatur of law enforcement on a special forces She's operation. there to dip the sheep. Exactly. Yeah. She's there to dip the sheep. Totally. And I was just so impressed by that. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it probably was a, a a point of the plot that was lost on 98% of the audience and is not essential to your appreciation of the movie. But I was sitting there halfway through with a friend of mine, and I said, oh, I know why she's there. And he, I, I said, she's just there to bless the operation. And, of course, that's... So here's my question. What do we know about the history of drug or war on drug as opposed to war on terror uh oriented 
findings and, co- and, and covert actions. This is exactly what I was thinking as I'm watching this film, right? So, and, I mean, and, and I guess the answer is n- no idea, and I'll bet you there is something there. Because I was, I, I was, rem- I was, afterwards I was having a drink with my friend who saw the movie, and I said, you know, I can remember in the transition between the end of the Bush administration and Obama, Mike Hayden going around and talking publicly and privately as the CIA director at the time, that he'd given Obama a top ten list of threats to the United States. And that somewhere, you know, around the middle was the threat that violence in Juarez and in Mexico from the drug trade would spill over into the United States, and that he needed to treat the drug cartels as basically you know, a national security threat to the United States. Well, that didn't happen, right? I mean, it didn't, the violence that he predicted didn't happen, and I just made me wonder, like, so has there been something going on all this time? So it's interesting. It's, I mean, it's a theme in fiction, in spy fiction thrillers for a long time. I forget which Tom Clancy movie it is, Clear and Present, Clear and present Danger, Danger, right, where there's a series of presidential findings. Yeah, they use the Iran-Contra model. Right, to, authorizing exactly. the targeting of um, Colombian cartels. But it's an interesting question, the answer to which I have no idea, has there ever been? I mean, there's certainly been, you know, CIA activity, which would suggest that there are some underlying findings. Um, but it'd be really, so if any readers, listeners know about um, what findings there have ever been on uh, cartels uh, and authorizing what sort of activity... Uh, let us know. You can call me. <laughs> yeah, tweet a tweet at us. You are aware of a covert finding against the Sinaloa? <laughs> no, cartel. some of them, you know, from the eighties, maybe, may, may we may know about by now. It could. I mean, I'm not. You know, not still classified no, stuff, but but it, it was totally plausible. This idea that you know we would being all out of options from the sort of you know the normal law enforcement kind of you know perspective. Um, that this is the the route we might have to go, and and she, as she gets pulled deeper into the plot, you know her you know <clears throat> faith in the system starts to erode, of course, because this is all off the books. But that Josh Brolin has this sort of great line when he's finally trying to like you know force her to just accept that this is what we have to do, as he said, you know basically until twenty percent of the U.S. public decides to stop snorting or smoking this crap, we have to live like wolves. This is how we live now, and it's really. Dark and deep and utterly plausible to me. Well, Shane, who does not live like a wolf, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I will go see it. Go yeah, see it. You sounds like a great. Definitely check it out. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, do you want your, your object? I thought to myself last week, you know, as we were uh, awa- awaiting the East Coast's annihilation by Hurricane Joachim. Why am I so confident that this is not going to happen? And I even tweeted that, uh, that Joaquin was going to be a total bust. It was just going to be rain in DC, just like all the other big storms have been. And, uh, you know, we always get riled up about the, the killer storm that's coming toward DC. It never actually arrives. So on this beautiful sunny Monday, having been proven right, I um, think back to an awesome, awesome YouTube video uh, of a weather report that explains exactly why we did not experience 
this global superstorm. And here is the relevant uh, part. We will post the whole thing on 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 our show page because it really is a thing of beauty. But the relevant part sounds like this. And ahead of this, a global superstorm developing off towards the Atlantic Ocean. This thing is headed our way. But the key to the forecast, right before this thing makes landfall, it is going to be deflected by Godzilla. Now, a lot can change between now and then. We're looking at the latest data. We'll continue to bring you the very latest. I do want to encourage you, though. That is why we were saved from blocking. <laughs> and, you know, you didn't notice him, but, but Godzilla was there he taking was there. care of us. He was there taking care of our security. That's a totally rational thought. Yeah, it's totally it's rational. Totally rational. The, the full video, as I say, is, is really, really worth watching. That's great. Um, okay. Okay. So my object this week, um, listeners of the podcast will know that I have over the past several months sort of been going through, uh, old military records for my grandfather and I'm trying to like mount a project to find people who may have known him and this kind of thing. Um, so, uh, it inspired me to go on Ancestry.com. Have you guys ever gone on Ancestry.com? I've been on Genie. A Genie? Is that like a rival's Ancestry? Genealogy, yeah. It's oh, okay. a genealogy website, yeah. <clears throat> well, Ancestry.com, like, the NSA basically needs to buy Ancestry.com. <laughs> because this is seriously, I was, within an hour, basically, I found, like, my great-great-grandfather. I found relatives I never knew I had, all these kind of things. Uh, and I found my great-grandfather, not my grandfather, but my great-grandfather, his father-in-law's draft registration card for World War One. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it looks like this. That's, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's it's the actual card. I have no idea how Ancestry.com has this. They probably got it from the Mormons or somebody who collects records, <laughs> you know, like this. Um, I have no idea, like, but they have this, and it's kind of astonishing that there you can, like, there it is. That's, like, my grandfather's signing up, and I think it's the date of birth, 1889, and I'm looking on here. I don't immediately see, oh, here it is, 1917, June 5th. So this would have been, wait, when was the armistice? Late, late in the war. Right. Yeah. Very late <clears throat> so in he the had war. to sign up. He was 27 years old at the time. I don't know when, why he signed up at this time versus any other. But, you know, there he is, like, listing... He actually lists his home address, the YMCA in North Yakima, Washington. I don't know if he was kicked out of his house, or that's just where he signed up. But, yeah, there you go. Like, wow, an unbelievably just sort of unexpected piece of history. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah that's great. a World War One draft card record. And apparently he had to film it out for World War Two as well, but he was not of fighting age when the Second World War came around. So, there you go. So The Shane family... The warlike Harris family yes. history continues. <laughs> exactly. I want to find out that I'm related to some kind of like you know Colombian hitman. I think you should find out that you're related to you know Patton. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, that'd be um, great. That would be great. Because it really, you know, then we could have George C. Scott play you. Totally. <laughs> then I can make all kinds of outrageous claims to, to know a thing or two. Right. About security. All right, so that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our other show pages and our podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us, Rational Security, at R-A-T-L Security on Twitter. Whenever you download the podcast from iTunes or your favorite podcasting app, please remember to leave a rating and a comment. That really helps us out a lot. And let your friends know about their podcast. Shamelessly tweet at them. 
post it on Facebook, and let us know uh, about any topics that you'd like us to maybe cover in the future, or movies you'd like me to go see. It's all about the movies. Yeah, or if you're Raytheon, you know, send me a missile, and <laughs> we'll review yeah, it. Wait, we still haven't heard a word Raytheon, from Raytheon. We have not heard a word from Raytheon. I think we should, like, move on to promoting Harry's Razors. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Harry's Razors, if you're out there, please call. They do send samples. They do send yeah, samples. They, yeah. I, 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 we'll take samples. We'll take sponsorship. I love Harry's Razors. We, I we, use them already. Do, do you really? Yeah, they're great. Really? We, yeah. we should we should talk about Harry's razors then <laughs> next episode. I have, hint, I, hint. I have strong opinions on that too. So Do you really? Okay. All right. Next week we are going to have a debate <laughs> on Harry's razors. Exactly. Maybe we'll have a chess block. Chess block debate on Harry's razors. Oh, the show is edited uh, by Jen Powell. Our music was performed this week. Raytheon and the Harry's razors. <laughs> And the Harry's Razors Jug Band. Uh, I was going to say, our music was performed this week by Cindy Lauper and the She-Boppers. <laughs> Excellent. Do you remember She-Bop? No. Oh, man, you don't remember that song? No. All right, that may, that may be my second object lesson. I'm just going to put the video for She-Bop. All right. All right. Now, of course, our music was performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, who is closer than any of us in proximity to Xi Jinping. That's true. That's true. And, and actually, Sophia... Um, can can is is formally under the sovereign territory of, of Xi Jinping. That's what she said. That's what she said. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and our special guest Cody Poplin, thanks for being here, Cody. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.